Tradesplaining, the podcast where you find out that there are more people who live on Staten Island. They actually moved there. How many cousins do you actually have? Because there's always another cousin. Like I had one cousin at Web Feet, everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of cousins. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, the podcast about two guys shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life. Also, a healthy dose of pauses for effect. And digressing. On today's episode, we'll talk about all things U.S. now that we're 100 days into the new administration. And a little later, we'll chat with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the trade guys from the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, folks, welcome to episode 19. Uh, it's a big episode. We're just churning them out now. Large. 19 so. is also the atomic number of potassium. Also, funnily enough, it's the age of Leonardo DiCaprio's last girlfriend. They're still together, I understand. Actually, they just broke up two seconds ago. Oh, sorry. It's on Twitter. Yeah, yeah I don't, I'm not on Twitter. 19 is also the name of Adele's 2008 debut album, one of my favorites. And uh, potassium is also a very important mineral that's in bananas. Especially if you're running. Thanks for oh, that. Are we just saying pretty much anything? Yeah, we're just okay. bringing it. <laughs> we call this the time filler. Also, also, the longest nonstop flight in the world scheduled by Singapore Airlines takes 19 hours, wink, wink, from Singapore to Newark, New Jersey. Want to fly to Newark My old Singapore? job. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, speaking of Jersey, our first piece of listener mail comes from Jersey Boy 8820 Yeah, he's back again for more who wrote again to tell us that we forgot to also mention last week that in his original letter to us, wasn't a letter, but yeah, he also added that while the show is great, and he learns something new every episode, for example, the periodic table. Periodic table, table we're getting there a big on one. that, yep. We also need to cut down on the dad jokes, especially you, Artie, quote unquote. Which and generationally is a strange phenomenon. I just do this more to connect with our listeners. And also get us out of situations where we don't know what we're talking about. It's a hidden talent. It's a strong... It it, it is a hidden talent. It's a USP for the podcast. I I think there are more podcasts who don't have that ability than there are that do. People will will understand us in the future. Come for the trade talk, stay for the dad jokes. (laughs) The non-sequiturs, and then dad joke is the sequitur. Yeah. That connects to the next. Anyway, speaking of dad jokes... The next with the... Speaking of dad jokes, another helpful tip comes from a daughter slash listener to their dad. She she says the podcast is now getting to the point where it's mostly digressing. So we read Artie, may want to stick a bit more to the script and not digress as much. So I, I strongly support this do you piece think, of feedback. Do you think they told Eddie Van Halen just stick to the script when he was belting out solos? Do you I, think I that's what know. happened? I, I, I don't know. That was even before my time. The answer is no. He didn't. Who's Eddie Van Halen in this scenario? <laughs> <laughs> at their Panama. Ah, yeah, music. Bing! Yeah. But anyway, thanks to Jersey Boy 8820 for his follow-up question, comment. Uh, also, Jersey still sucks. And yeah. We, we'll, we'll think about the dad joke thing. We respect Jersey. Ish. For ish. Also, I guess it's important to mention that Bruce Springsteen is not the only person from Jersey. Famous person. There's plenty of them. You'd be surprised. John Travolta's from Jersey. Really? Chris yeah. Christie. Whitney Houston. Rest in peace. Shaq. Shaquille O'Neal is from Jersey. Is he really? Yeah, he's from Newark, I think. Okay. Frank Sinatra, although nobody really remembers. He's from Hoboken. It's basically a suburb of New York. Jack Nicholson is from Jersey. Is he? Meryl Streep. Kevin Spacey. Actually, forget Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Uh, Dr. Jill Biden is from Jersey. I think that's the one we should lead with. Yeah? Yeah, lead with that one. Michael Douglas. 
Kirsten Dunst. Are you literally looking at Google right now? Yeah, I just Googled it. Kirsten Dunst, <laughs> born on my birthday, April 30th. So is Gail Godot. If anybody would like to wish Artie a happy birthday, trade.splaining at gmail.com. Paul Simon from Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, not the senator from uh, Illinois. No, no. Grover Cleveland is from Jersey. Yeah, that wasn't a good one. Also, we talk about Springsteen. How could I forget John Bon Jovi is from Jersey? That's better. George George R. R. Martin is from Jersey. Three J's. He's from Bayonne, and he used to look across at Staten Island, and that's how he got the the idea for the North, no, like with the, the ice the ice place. Basically, the messed up part. It was a view of Staten Island. Yeah, yeah. I read that somewhere. <laughs> or I'm made hard. it up. I can't remember which. Anyway, moving on. Let's just jump right into this episode's news roundup. As we mentioned, we're going to be talking a lot about the U.S. on this episode, so focusing a, a bit on that. There's been quite a bit of news there recently, starting with vaccines. Surprise, surprise. So the U.S. has officially come out in favor of waiving intellectual property rights for COVID vaccine patents as a way to sort of boost vaccine supply globally. Now, this has been met with equal parts fury and praise from all sides and from some unlikely sides as well. And I think it highlights, in my opinion, one of the biggest issues on the broader trade negotiation front. But maybe, Rob, you can talk to us a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, I, I like it because it shows that we want to be part of the multilateral system. So we've agreed to have conversations in the WTO about this. That's already really good uh, message. Second is people talk about why they're doing it. It could be to pressure drug companies to license more manufacturers, mm. could be to open up supply of raw materials. It was part of a package. So there's a lot of good things about it. But you're right, it does it does bring up some bigger issues. So for example, India and South Africa are two of the biggest countries cheerleading this effort. They're also historically two of the biggest countries who are most in favor of waiving IP rights for, for pretty much everything when it comes to trade negotiations. And I guess this is just an example which is very topical and most of us can relate to now, which is vaccine patents, but highlighting one of the sort of the biggest obstacles that usually come up in trade negotiations which most people, to be honest, find quite boring and really not applicable to them. But it shows how it fits into this broader multilateral system and, and these discussions and things like this. Most of the actual people who came out against this move were actually in the U.S. And one of the interesting things is they've highlighted national security concerns, surprise, surprise, mm -hmm. as one of the reasons not to, on top of all of the relevant economic arguments for not doing so. Basically, it would, it would disincentivize vaccine makers to, to keep producing these vaccines at a rapid rate in the future. Also, considering the fact that there are more vaccines coming out, basically, we're thinking only about Pfizer and Moderna and, and Johnson & Johnson, but there are more vaccines that are in the pipeline. So what they're saying is this would disincentivize vaccine makers from spending money investing into building these vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. And the larger conversation is about if we, if we know protecting... IP gives people an incentive to invest in, in research and development. That's what we think. On the other hand, those who are not holding the technology think it's an un unfair advantage or it needs to be somehow balanced with their the global interest in transfer of technology. So I think, as you say, it's, this is a particularly acute case of it, mm. but it is it is always an issue. Also, it's probably nice to have the access to the tech on vaccines for free. Well, that's not me talking. I'm, that's the cynic, cynical mm. argument. Right. Yeah, but you say, well, was it uh, these drug companies engaged in R&D and they were subsidized by, by public entities, the U.S. government is one of them. And sh if this is a light, this is something that could save the world, why should they be profiting? We saw a massive income statements or massive uh, profit announcements from both companies. Is that, a, is that a good idea that they would be massively profiting from something where they got R&D help from the U.S. government and from other sources? I think one of the arguments I heard was quite interesting and sort of resonated with me a bit is that the U.S., if, since we're talking about the U.S. this episode, one of the arguments, the best ones I heard was that the U.S. should use this as an opportunity to reach
reach out to, say, India, for example. It's the fastest growing country in the world. It's also going through a really rough time at the moment. And by giving them these vaccines, that's a, that's a way of sort of reinforcing that, that relationship there. So yeah, there, is a, there is a, nat- a strategic national interest sort of argument to be made there as well, I think. Well, for me, it goes way beyond the subject of the actual waiver. It's about also being involved, co- talking about things, trying to work things out cooperatively, collaboratively, then either fi- either finding a few like-minded countries or just doing things unilaterally. So I think it's a good sign. Yeah. I'm also reminded what Matthew Wilson said uh, a few months ago. He said, we should judge ourselves by how we treat our most vulnerable populations. And I think this is another example, rather, instead of just saying it, it's a good opportunity for us to, to do it, right? Yeah. You mean Republicans? I mean everybody. We're in this together. Okay. There's no I in team. Okay. But there's an I in win, <laughs> which is what we're doing. Hashtag winning. Anyway, there's also in the news, there's a great article in the Wall Street Journal on how Chinese manufacturers are sidestepping trade barriers by buying factories overseas. And this links back to what Pierre Sauvet had talked about in our interview with him a few episodes ago. But tell us a little about that, Rob. Sure. So they're, they're basically summarizing the fact that, of course, there are, there are trade barriers that, that have actually risen for exports from China to many countries. And Chinese companies have reached out to buy manufacturing plants within those countries in order to sidestep the barriers, or even in third countries who already have better trade, trading relationships. The, the catch here is that these Chinese companies are state-owned, so they're heavily subsidized, and they've got a lot of government cash, which can allow them to aggressively acquire companies and potentially to price below market. So I think it's a very interesting illustration of what Pierre Sauvé said. It used to be either trade or investment. So investment's a way to get around a certain trade barriers, but it also brings jobs and development to the countries where you invest. So this is essentially a good thing. But the reason it's complex is because these companies are getting a subsidy from their home country, from their, from their country of origin, and that is an unfair, in a way, and an unfair advantage. So it brings up all sorts of questions around which kind of a subsidy is a good one. So if an American company gets a tax break, which allows them to invest, is that better than a Chinese government-owned company that gets a subsidy, which is just direct cash? It also it, it emphasizes the importance of looking at trade and investment relationships together. So this is what the EU has done to, to negotiate this trade and investment agreement with China that's now being now being refined and, and, and ratified. Is that being ratified? I thought it was I thought it was put on ice. No, that one's signed and it's and the it's got it's got to go through a ratification process in the EU. Ah, uh, excuse me, that's right. So there there's just been doubts raised by it, but it's still chugging along. Yeah. This is a very complex issue and already it's kind of cascading. So you have the US in some cases saying even Chinese-owned companies based in the U.S. may not bid for government contracts. We have situations where the U.S. is stopping exports from Thailand or taking action against them because Chinese companies are based there. And, uh, and, and some of the same things are happening in the, in the European Union. So we're, we're far from free trade models that all of us looked at in, in university. And it gets very complex. And this is why we have these strategic review councils that look at foreign investment in strategic which is much more interesting than it sounds. It's review council. Fast, fascinating. It's it sounds like a conspiracy. It sounds like a name I would come up with if I wanted you to think that there was nothing going on here, they, and it was a conspiracy. They're probably not called that. I think that's also a good segue. This clash between state-led and market-led capitalism, broadly speaking, with the next bit of news, which which we thought was important to point out, and that is that the the commerce secretary in the U.S. of the Biden administration, from Rob's home state of Rhode Island. <laughs> Okay, I'll it's take Rhode that. Rhode Island, right? Rhode Island, <laughs> yes. So uh, the Biden administration is in talks with 
Taiwan and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co., TSMC, to prioritize the needs of U.S. automakers to boost supplies after chip shortages led to closed factories, furloughed workers, and things like this. Now, this comes as car makers have cut production after a huge, huge surge in orders for items like smartphones, TVs, computers, have left less capacity for that unexpected rebound in demand in vehicles. So as I said before, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo has called for a major increase in U.S. production capacity for these computer chips. Raimondo has said that the push should create jobs and wean the nation off over-dependence on China and Taiwan, quote-unquote. She also lamented the fact that, again, I'm quoting, 0% of leading-edge chips are made in the U.S., and she also suggested that the U.S. should be producing 30% of all chips to meet roughly equal demand from U.S. companies, which is not really a traditional view taken by U.S. administrations over the past forever, basically. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this from people on why this type of thinking is wrong from an economic perspective or a business perspective, so we won't go into too much detail there. But from my perspective, I don't know what you think, Rob, I think the two main things that stand out are one, we're seeing the remnants or the remains or the dying embers, if you will, or maybe they're, they're not dying, they're, they're very much solidified in, in, in concrete, of the America First policy carrying over from the last administration, at least in terms of the language used, if not by the actions as of yet. And again, while I sympathize with many of the arguments against it, I think it is something you've talked about before, maybe you'll, you'll elaborate on, but I think it's worth having a conversation about, considering the fact that there are so many economies around the world who are doing well that promote national champions and things like this, basically the opposite of what we've traditionally been taught in Economics 101. So, Yeah, I mean, back in the Clinton administration, they famously said, I don't care if you're producing potato chips or computer chips, that, it's, that uh, we just need to set the rules and have an open competition and free economic system and that it'll choose the best solution. We've come a long way from there. We, I don't think we really believe that anymore. So there's knowledge jobs, there are spillovers, there's a lot of things associated with manufacturing, but we haven't yet figured out how to apply that model. And I think the, the Biden administration and many others are thinking about how to apply that without aggressively picking winners and throwing subsidies at them, which we know is an issue. That was one of the reasons the Washington consensus came out. One of the reasons that we, we moved in that direction in the 90s is because many these subsidies created non-competitive companies that went out of business fast. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll just follow on with that about... Because I think this is one one element of what the Biden administration is doing, which I think is really interesting for us to note. We've talked with Bernard Hochman, Pierre Sauvé, even Barbara Ramos. All of these folks talked about it's not trade's fault, if I may summarize that way, that there's flanking policies. Other policies need to be in place for us to benefit. And many of the things you see, whether you agree with them or not, many of the attempts you see by this administration are in that area. So they're trying to think about how to allow for adjustment costs for workers. So more unemployment insurance? How do they invest in infrastructure to make U.S. workers more productive? How do they improve labor protections? So they're, they're, we've talked about the gig economy. Sounds cool. Maybe it isn't. Powered by clean coal. This is it. And this, they, they've changed the definition of what an independent contractor is because it was too easy. Mm. So anybody could be, even if they're really an employee. They've thought about also job training and all these good things. This is exactly what we're talking about, a flanking policy. So they're, they're saying trade is not higher in their priority, which is true. However, some of these other policies which allow us to mitigate the unequal effects of trade are high on their priority. Yeah, I I think when you're looking at it sort of from a 30,000-foot view, I think one of the things you said, you've also said before when we've talked about this, I thought was super enlightening, and that's the fact that we've we've traditionally been against national champions. So if you're looking at 
the Korean model or, or the Chinese model most recently. And we've said, hey, let the market decide. The market is this, it's like the force in Star Wars. It's all around us. It knows what to do, etc. <laughs> It'll figure it out. But when you're looking at the US, especially the tech sector, you've seen a concentration of power of market share of market capitalization in just a few, a handful of countries. You know, they even have a name for it. They're called the Fangs, right? And so my question is that that makes me think is have we've ended up at roughly the same place by two very divergent philosophies, right? So we may not call them national champions, but Facebook, the apples of the world, they are sort of synonymous with the US itself. And they are huge. Like you, you wouldn't think of another phone manufacturer coming in to challenge Apple at this very moment. Apple is now talking about building a car, for example, which mm. you wouldn't have thought about before. So we've ended up at roughly the same place with very divergent philosophies. My question is, is there a middle ground? Is there, what's the difference actually? would be a better question if we're ending up at the same place. Well, I think it, the, the tech sector may be a place where we didn't exercise. Just don't say data is the new oil, because I will walk off. <laughs> that is the most over, so if we get one guest on here that says data or data, whatever, if you're British, is the new oil, we're cutting that off. So what I was going to say is that these tech giants grew up in an environment that was did not have very strong competition policy, for instance. So there, there were elements of what we think of as, as, as our system, which weren't applied very well. And They've, they've now reached a level of concentration which may not be healthy. So maybe we have to go a little bit the other direction in those cases. But for other industries, we're, we're deciding in a way how we want to support them without, without massive, uh, massive subsidies. And of course, the U.S. does have national champions. We just do it a different way. If you take Boeing, we're doing a lot of things to subsidize Boeing. If you, if you listen to the Europeans... You listen to the Europeans. Cough, cough, Airbus. <laughs> Sorry, I have a little, have a little, little tickle in my throat. So we do have national champions, but perhaps we're we're, dis, we're disorganized in the way that we want to support things. I think it's like that Facebook relationship status. It's, it's complicated. Ting, 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 ting. ting. You know, the U.S. economy like, just like, switched to it's, it's complicated. It's like let's not put a label on it. Is the U.S. let's let let's let this good thing happen, and let's not put a label yeah. on this relationship. Whereas the Japanese, the Koreans, yeah. they're just like we're in this together. Yeah. And last four years is, I'm sorry what I said when I was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Miller is a senior advisor with the Abshir Inamori Leadership Academy at CSIS, focusing on leadership development programs for public and private sector executives. My old job. Which one of the CSISs did you like, Miami? I'm a New York guy. CSIS New York? I like the one in Vegas. All of them are great. The one in Washington's not bad either. <laughs> From 2012 to 2017, he also held the William M. Scholl Chair in International Business at CSIS. The Scholl Chair focuses on key issues in the global economy, such as international trade, investment, competitiveness, and innovation. From 97 to 2012, Scott was also the Director for Global Trade Policy at Procter & Gamble. Scott is also a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Economic Policy. Bill Reinch is the second of the trade guys. He holds the Scholl Chair in International Business at CSIS. He's also a senior advisor at Kelly Dry and Warren LLP and an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland. He's busy. Previously, he served for 15 years as president of the National Foreign Trade Council. From 2001 to 2016, he was also a member of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, so he knows of what he speaks. He was also in the Clinton administration, and he spent 20 years on Capitol Hill supporting uh, senators on trade issues. Perhaps more importantly, he has a master's from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, my alma mater. Since we're on the topic, he also flew over Wisconsin once. Is there no Wisconsin connection here? Because that's the most disturbing. He once almost went to Waukesha, but then changed his mind, decided to live the rest of his life. I'm glad you were able to bring up one name of one city. 
So, Scott and Bill, welcome to to the podcast. Thank you guys for joining us. I'm I don't know how Rob feels, but I personally am I'm quite excited. This is sort of me looking into the mirror a few years down the line. <laughs> Rob, not so much. Maybe Rob's looking backwards. This is for me like the DC and Marvel cinematic universe meeting in one. You guys are like the brooding, serious discussion. We're just like the popcorny Robert Downey Jr. post cocaine. Yeah, correct. So let's just get started. Maybe you could both tell us a little bit about yourselves. How did you get into uh, your respective fields and sort of what's the journey been like? What's what's changed most? Well, Bill was a little more thoughtful about it. Mine was, I got into the trade as a total accident. So I was a career employee of Procter & Gamble. I was an executive in the operations side of the business for about 17 years in manufacturing and marketing. And I just uh, returned from an assignment in Canada and I was, I was looking for some something interesting to do with the experience I'd had. And uh, Procter & Gamble, which had a four-person Washington office had two openings and they chose to bring somebody from headquarters who was me and along with hiring a Washington insider who wound up, he and I worked together for the next 17 years, but it was a great run. So I, I moved to Washington really for a short assignment and that was in 1995 and I just stayed, but it happened in 1995. The issues that my, my employer was facing were international in nature. The company expanded very quickly as, as the markets opened up in the, in the late eighties and early nineties. And by 95, we were having good results and serious problems. And so I came to Washington to deal with the problems. And uh, so I worked both the domestic side of international trade and economics. That is, I was a lobbyist. I managed issues through the Congress and the administration, was a cleared advisor to the U.S. administration for a number of years. And then I also did a lot of diplomacy or commercial diplomacy with uh, our business units and government officials outside the U.S. So I did that until 20, 2012 and uh, I retired from P&G and unretired six weeks later to join uh, CSIS. And so for the past nine years, I've been at CSIS, first running the international business program and now working on executive education. Excellent. And Bill, how about yourself? My, my arrival was was also accidental, but uh, a very different path. I had gone to graduate school and Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And so I was a foreign policy person. So I went to work on the Hill. And after having one boss retire on me, which happens on the Hill, and then another boss fire me, which also happens on the Hill, since there's no no tenure, I ended up spending the next uh, 14 years working for John Hines, who was the senator from Pennsylvania. I worked for him from the day he came to the Senate till the day he died, sadly. And he hired me to do foreign policy. But what we both discovered after a year or so was that he wasn't on the Foreign Relations Committee. All of his committee assignments really were economic, banking and, and finance, which has jurisdiction over trade. So there was a lot to do. And Basically, I ended up doing trade, and eventually we hired somebody else to do foreign policy. And the wonderful thing about trade is that no problems are ever solved. Yes. You know, they go on and on forever. When Airbus is in its 17th year, I was, did a thing yesterday. Uh, Canadian lumber goes back to the 80s. These things are eternal, so it's it's permanent employment, and it, it turned out fine. I did it in Congress for really 20 years, and then went into the executive branch because one of my one of my fields is, is technology transfer and export controls because that's something that that Senator Hines was in, deeply involved in because of the committees he was on. And so I did that for the Clinton administration. And then I got to know Scott much better after that. The 2000 election introduced me to the private sector since my guys lost. And I began to run a trade association. And Is that Ralph Nader? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Procter & Gamble was one of the members. So Scott was one of my members, and I did that for 15 years and then followed the, the fundamental principle of, of uh, trade of association 
work, which is get out before they throw you out. And I did. And then I ended up here at CSIS, where I'm a newbie, and Scott is by far the senior person. That's excellent. You, so you worked for John Hines. Uh, I guess the pay might not have been that great, but you probably had lifetime supply of ketchup. First guy to think <laughs> of that joke. That's the second person to think of that joke, because he left. So guys, as Artie was saying, we often have a kind of Geneva-centric view, but Geneva waxes and wanes in terms of its relevance, but it's doing a lot of waning lately. So and partially, the reason we want to talk to you guys is because we want to hear a little bit of the perspective from, from Washington, but also from outside Geneva. And one of the questions we see now, obviously under Lighthizer and so on, the idea of free trade for free trade's sake and the idea of, of efficiency went down in terms of its, of its currency. And now we see that we're not sure that's changed much. And we read in the New York Times that the, the idea of free trade as a concept in its own right, that even Democrats used to defend, is now under threat. So is, is the idea of free trade as a concept kind of over in Washington? And if it is, is that a good thing? And, and what's replaced it? Well, look, Washington is probably, at least in my experience, has always been more about reciprocity than it's been about, about true free trade. We've had the occasional leader who believed in it and acted on it. The two I would name recently is... Paul Ryan, when he was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and when he was Speaker of the House, was a heart, heartfelt, strong free trader. He believed in the core principles articulated by Adam Smith, and, and he operated that way. And so he's, but he's a, he was rare even within the Republican Party. And George W. Bush, as President Bush actually put political capital behind his beliefs in uh, trade as a, as a way to improve lives. So, they, but Washington as a whole tends not to be committed in that way. They're, they they like fairness, they like reciprocity, they like opening markets. I've, I've approached it a little bit differently. Uh, sort of big picture, it's sort of Leninist, two steps forward, one step backward. Uh, it trade, support for trade, support for globalization, kind of uh, waxes and wanes. I think the fundamental thing that, that I'm always reminded of is that the tools that enable trade, which have been enormous reductions in the cost of, of transportation and communications over the last 30 years, they haven't gone away and they're not going to be uninvented. So the tools are there and it's just a question of the extent to which people want to take advantage of them. We have an administration right now that's focusing on domestic economic recovery and wants to focus on, on, on restoring the domestic manufacturing base to the extent it can. But the reality is that the United States is, it's a we're a mature, slow-growth economy. We may do 6% this year, which is what Biden was talking about the other day, but that's because we're recovering from a terrible year, and that's to be expected. Everybody's going to do well for some part of this year. But in normal years, 3% is really good for us, and the reality is our population is stable. If you saw our, our census that came out on Monday, we we grew 7.4%, which is the slowest growth in more than more than 50 years. And the reality is, economically, if we want to grow, we got to trade. 96% of the world's consumers are outside our borders, and we're not going to see rapid growth unless we engage globally. So I think it's inevitable, and yeah, maybe now it's a step back, but there will be two steps forward in the future at some point, and and Biden will figure it out. I mean, they're not they're not dummies in the administration, and I think they're they're preoccupied now with other issues, and that will slow down their global economic engagement. But they'll come back to it. Every conversation he has with a, a global leader they bring up trade. So you mentioned that in your view, it's inevitable. I mean, I think most people, especially in our field of work would agree with you, but a lot of people don't agree with you, right? Do you think that is because we've done a poor job or not as good a job as we should have in communicating these benefits and why trade is is important outside of the beltway or, or the global beltway, if you will? 
Well, we try. I think one, one, the politics of it in the United States is there's, there's a decent amount of cognitive dissonance. If you ask people a general question, what do you think about trade? You generally get a positive answer. If you break that down and say, does trade cost you jobs? You probably get a majority who says yes. And you derive other, does, does offshoring bad for the economy? Yes. If you break it down, the typical answer is exports are good, imports are bad. So people are capable of holding contradictory views at the same time. And I think at least in in our country, one of the reasons is level of intensity. Go back to what Scott said. If you ask people, is trade a good thing, you get right now mid-60% of the population saying yes. If you ask a different question, which is, what are the three most important problems the country has? Trade is number eight. It went down. Climate change had been number eight. It's gone up to number seven. The top three are always terrorism, the economy, and healthcare. And they take turns being number one. I think right now the economy is probably number one. Trade is down at the bottom, so it's not a decisive factor when people vote. It doesn't frame the it doesn't frame the public views. People have opinions on it, but if their politician is has, is in a different place, that doesn't cause them to vote against him. They'll vote against him or her because of their views on, on the big three. So I think the other problem we've got right now is the administration is conflating benefits with, with distribution of benefits. If you listen to Ambassador Tai, the whole conversation is we want a trade policy that is helps workers, that helps the middle class, where the benefits accrue to workers and not to CEOs and the big companies. I, I think she's right about that. I mean, I, I don't, and, and one of our problems here in the United States is growing inequality. And it's a fair point that the benefits of trade have not been distributed equitably. But I think there's a difference between trade agreements, which create benefits, uh, and other government policies, which distribute the benefits. I mean, what we sort of learned is that, that a rising tide hasn't lifted all the boats, despite what President Kennedy said 60 years ago, the, the billionaires' yachts float free and do just fine, but the workers' yachts are, are not, the, you know, work, the workers' rowboats are stuck in the mud. But you don't solve that problem by not having trade. Trade creates the benefits that you want to distribute. And then you use other elements of government policy, whether it's tax policy or adjustment policy, to make sure the benefits are distributed. I mean, if I were going to criticize the Biden administration, is, is they're focusing entirely on distribution and not on creating the benefits. If you're not creating more benefits, there's not going to be any more to distribute. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's, that rings true. The conversations we're in, it often seems like the conversations about trade or not trade, which mm -hmm. of course is absurd, but it one get one gets, gets trapped in that. But Scott, did you want to come in on that? Well, I just wanted to say your first question was, do we do a poor job of selling the benefits of trade? The answer is unequivocally yes. Look, I was in consumer products marketing. You always start with the benefit. When you're talking to a consumer, why should they buy your product? Trade people never start with the benefits, okay? The benefits are longer, happier lives, better living standards, economic growth, however you want to frame it. I mean, and those are things people desire in life. I mean, for me, you'd start with, start with 1989. That's when the Berlin Wall fell. About that time, the World Bank said, something like 35 or 40% of the people on the planet live below their poverty line, $1.90 a day or whatever it is now, all right? 35%. What is it now? Seven, eight. We'll tick up a little bit because of COVID maybe, but that is the largest reduction of poverty in human history, all right? In 25 years, what caused it? The, the liberation and movement of goods, people, ideas, and culture. That's trade and globalization. I mean, now distribution is another question and uh, we have problems with Pareto distributions in almost everything we do because talent is not evenly distributed, nor are rewards. And so 
government policy can affect that. But, but it's one of those things that we, we do a terrible job of, before we start complaining about all the problems of trade, some, some of us free traders need to step up and say, look, this actually created better lives. And when you said distribution of talents not, is uneven, was that Artie? Yeah, I think that's what he was thinking. Probably. <laughs> well, that, that, that's in any field of endeavor. I was Frank, thinking that includes Bill. I was thinking the Pareto distribution and the amount of work done on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think 80-20 would be, a, would be a good, would be a more equitable distribution if we could. So um, I guess the next question we have would be on, on Geneva itself. So me and Rob, Rob and I, I should say, are based in Geneva. I've been here for, since 2013, and Rob's, as I said before, since... 10 years, years at least, yeah. Long mm-hmm. time. In your view, as based in Washington, do you think Geneva is still relevant? Because we always talk about it as sort of the trade hub, if you will, particularly in the UN system. Catherine Tai has said, the U.S. Trade Representative has said a lot of good things, and but it seems, however, that multilateralism is no longer the main focus of U.S. trade policy. If, do you think Look, it's a good news, bad news story. Here's the good news. About 75% of U.S. trade happens at MFN rates, right? So you, you would look at that and say, if you want to hunt where the ducks are, we're very interested in multilateral trade, in better market access at the MFN levels, because that's how we do business as a country, okay? That's the good news. The bad news is uh, one of utility, is that nothing happens in Geneva. So if you want if you want more attention from the United States, how about let's stop making excuses and do something valuable and important, Okay. Right now on your agenda, fisheries. Fisheries has been on the agenda probably since, well, not since I was a child, but for a long time, 20 years or so. We failed to find agreement in Seattle in 1999 on fisheries subsidies. So we've been failing to find agreement ever since then. And that's one where it's a real serious global commons problem. It really requires cooperation. And before we get into even tougher issues like climate change, we had to demonstrate capability there. So right priority, too many excuses, not enough action. But it's an opportune moment because we've just moved out of the four years of narrative that had every trade deal was a bad deal because my predecessors were all, all they negotiated were bad deals. And so we were at, we're past that. And we have a, a confirmed multilateralist in office and uh, who's got a lot of other things to do, by the way, on his, on, by his own declaration. But it, but there's a moment here that you can start to engender cooperation, but it's going to take action. And I agree with Scott 100% on this. The real test would be fisheries. If they can produce a fish agreement, it's win-win-win. The fish win, which is important. The WTO wins because it could re- it reestablishes its credibility as capable of deciding something. And I think uh, multilateral cooperation wins. So one of the things we talk a lot about on, on, on this podcast is on trade and inequality. You uh, had alluded to this earlier in one of your answers when we were talking about how we communicate the benefits of trade. Now, uh, maybe we can unpack that a little bit more specifically on your thoughts. I'm thinking specifically the Biden administration has recently been talking loudly about a global minimum corporate tax as a way to sort of balance the the playing field in a way. Is this a type of solution to the problems that people have when we're talking about trade and inequality? Partly one of which I guess is, as we said, we don't communicate it well enough. I think it is. I mean, Scott and I may differ on this as a longtime Democrat. I'm wholeheartedly in favor of what, what Biden wants to do. The, we've had this odd debate in this country where the Republican Party is adamantly against raising any taxes on anybody, anytime, anywhere, any place. And it's, it's a legacy of, of Ronald Reagan's, the government is the enemy and we need 
need smaller government theory. And now you've got a president coming back and say, if you look at recent history, if you look at the pandemic, these are not, this is not the kind of problem that somebody can solve by himself. The, there's a role for government, and we've not attended to national problems for a very long time, the biggest one of which is inequality. And it's past time to do that. And I think what he wants to do is, is, is directionally right. I think we can quibble about, about the details. And my wife, who's a CPA and with a tax practice, tells me that some of his specific proposals may, may end up having the opposite effect of what he intends. But I think that in, intentionally, he's moving in the right direction. Tax policy is not the only thing. We have to do a lot more for our workers. I mean, the nature of work is changing. We've got a growing segment of our population that simply does not have skills that fit the current economy. And we need to do a lot more work on reskilling, upskilling, continued edu continuing education, and not certainly for people that are 50 when the factory closed and there's no other job in their community. That's the toughest problem. But the same is for our kids. We have to do a much better job of preparing the next generation for an economy where they're going to have multiple jobs. I, know, I think Bill's right. Those coordination efforts tend to be, if not complete fool's errands, at least time wasters, where what you really need to do is look at what are the requirements of your society in the future in terms of workforce, and what do you have to do to get there? I mean, one of the key disruptions of that the, that globalization that enriched so much of the world that 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 resulted in sort of more middle class people in places like China and India than there are people in the United States, and all that's all that's a great thing in term in terms of the benefits of trade, but. At the same time, as, as Richard Baldwin discusses, industrial economy labor lost its monopoly on industrial economy know-how, and they were subject to competitive pressures that weren't there before you could communicate so easily. So life has changed. We've got to deal with the changes in life. There, there are terrific opportunities, but you've got to be prepared for them. And we, we, still have, we still have people who have jobs in advanced manufacturing that can't fill them. So there's still gaps. And, and for me, I think that's, the, that's where the effort is really deserved. And, and it, you need tax revenue to do this, obviously, but I, I don't hold out a lot of hope for doing it with a flat corporate tax rate globally. So the, the last trade question is about vaccines. So we hear a lot about vaccine hoarding. The U.S., maybe they're not strictly export controls, but the U.S. is is somehow restricting raw materials and is hoarding uh, vaccines. And now they want to share AstraZeneca because who want wants it. AstraZeneca? So so do you, I mean, do you guys think this is, a, this is a trade issue and is the U.S. doing something wrong here? Or should it be done differently? Well, look, let's start with what I consider almost miraculous is that we spent... We, we just have this new pathogen that's affecting the world. We, from, we had less than 11 months from, from isolating the genomic sequence of the pathogen to a vaccine in distribution that is 95% effective and safe. 11 months, all right? That is astonishing scientific achievement. The second thing I would note with that is because of massive investments particularly by the U.S. government. You had multiple trials continue at once, and you wound up with three or four successful candidates through the FDA process, all in that very short period of time. So that is, that is a major blessing of living in a, the modern world. In terms of where the vaccine goes, to me, the problem that is most pressing for most people not vaccinated is how they get the shot in the arm. And it's that last mile distribution that was a challenge in the United States. It's been a challenge elsewhere. And I think less carping about vaccine hoarding and more focus by governments on last mile distribution will get more people vaccinated faster than almost anything we can do. That's that's Europe that's listening. <laughs> Whoever, Europe, Canada. 
okay, which is less than 20% of adults have been vaccinated, even one dose in Canada. So. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's an interesting example. It's not a poor country. It's not that no, they can't no. afford it, but they don't produce it, and they're scrambling for the resources. I mean, the United States has announced they're sending 60 million doses to, to India, and I assume that that we'll keep our word and do that. The question is, though, at the end will be will be Scots. They're all going to they're all going to fly in. They're going to land in Mumbai and Delhi. And then what happens to them after the plane lands? And it takes infrastructure to get them out and and to into people. We usually make this expat focus, but since you're both based in in the U.S. and have been for some time, we'll probably try to we're going to switch it around a little bit. Have you been to Staten Island? Uh, my son lives there. It's a little bit like living a chapter of The Sopranos. <laughs> It's a fascinating well, place. That, that's why I left. <laughs> so are you really from there? Uh, yeah, very much so. So I, I lived there until uh, right before I moved to Geneva. He so went to college there and, and stayed. They're thinking, I mean, he's gotten married, had a kid, and he married somebody who grew up there. They're thinking now about moving, but I mean, he oh, kind of likes it there, but it's a, it's a very insular place, might be the most tactful thing to say about it. And he knows there's a ferry? <laughs> I'll tell you, like, yes, he knows there's a ferry, but I can tell you he's a true child of the suburbs, which is where he grew up in suburban Maryland, where, where I live. I was up there for a meeting or a conference, and, and it was down, it was down in, on Wall Street, really. It was right around the corner from, from the stock exchange. It was like two, three blocks from the ferry, and he was going to come over and have dinner with me. And he was coming from his office, his, the studio where he was working at the time, which was across the street from the other end of the ferry. And he drove free ferry across the street, three blocks, and he chose to drive across the Verrazano Narrows into Brooklyn, through Sorry, the tunnel, so and then pay $50 to park down off of Wall Street so he could have dinner with me. Child of the suburbs. Well, I they, miss home. They call it bridge and tunnel for a reason. It's not bridge and ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, let's move on to something everybody can, we can all agree on. And that is that Bruce Springsteen is fantastic, especially if you're Chris Christie. On a scale of zero to Bruce Springsteen, how much do you enjoy having your own podcast? Look, this is a lot of fun. And one of the things that it makes it really interesting as a think tank guy is it's the only product that we produce as a think tank that can be consumed by the audience when they're doing something else. Okay. If you attend a seminar, you've got to sit there. If you read a report, you've got to read, but a podcast, you can listen and do whatever you want. And I think that's helped us to reach people that we would not reach by anything else we do. And for me, that's, that's the enjoyment of it. I mean, I like talking to Bill and like, like arguing, but what, what I really like is the idea we're reaching people who wouldn't pay any attention to what we have to say otherwise. There are downsides to that, though. I remember, and Scott knows this story, going to a reception, somebody coming up to me saying, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen to it all the time. And so I said, so when do you listen? Because a lot of people listen when they're commuting. And he said, no, no, no. I put the earbuds in when I'm going to bed. <laughs> Great. It's nice to know that you're a cure for insomnia. But... Uh, Go to sleep with the soothing sounds of trade guys. Yes, there you go. I'll tell you, it's, it's one of the most, yeah. it's one of the more fun things I do on the, on the Springsteen scale. I'd say Steven Tyler, not, not, <laughs> not Springsteen, but uh, it's a fun thing to do. So we've got a couple of questions we ask every guest. So you guys are there. We got a, this is a scientific, it's a robust podcast. So have you, one of the, one of the things that we all do here in Geneva is get our bikes stolen. It's like the, it's like a national pastime. So have either of you ever had your bike stolen either in Geneva or anywhere else? Yes. 1978, it was a Raleigh 10 speed made in Great Britain of all things. And I was in grad school at the time. And I lived in a neighborhood where grad schools, grad students could afford to live. And so it got stolen, never replaced. So 
My son, mine was not stolen, my son's was stolen, and it was stolen from inside my house, which was annoying, by a classmate of his. And we ultimately, in relatively short order, we got it back because his father found out about it. But it was annoying at the time. So never visiting Maryland. Since 1978. That's a, <laughs> Well, you have to watch out for your neighbors. Watch out for the Joneses. Don't worry don't, about, yeah, exactly. Don't keep up with the Joneses, just watch out for them. Don't worry about terrorism. Lock your doors. That's what I learned. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the next one we had. So the the national food of Geneva, which is a republic and a canton in Switzerland, is kebab. So it's definitely most kebab. people don't know this, but a lot of people don't know it. Right. Fondue, whatever people say, it's definitely kebab. And there's really only two good kebab here: parfum de Beirut or Alamir or parfum de Beirut. That's basically the only two choices. So have you guys ever? Do you guys have a favorite kebab or other globally guilty, or in Geneva or other guilty pleasure or another favorite fast? No, I can't say that I do. Although I, I'm a massive fan of American barbecue and it, broadly characterized. That is relatively lousy cuts of meats cooked low and slow. And it's all over the country. It's different everywhere. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, South Carolina is different than North Carolina, different than Kansas City ribs are different than St. Louis ribs. And there's wonderful variations and all of it with real craftsmanship and, 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 and care and preparation. So I'm a huge barbecue fan. In D.C., stop at uh, Hill Country on 7th Street in Penn Quarter. It's real Texas brisket. Now they have to sponsor nice. us. Yeah. It's actually dinner time here, so this is... Thanks thanks for that. Yeah, it's actually a little bit around. So we're suffering now. Bill, Bill, what's your kebab story? I really care for them, to be honest with you. I find them generally almost always too dry. You must have had the Kansas City kebab. They're, they're yeah, notoriously they're... dry. <laughs> well, I don't have them very often. Uh, send me out to the Eastern Shore and give me Ooh, a bowl lovely. of cream of crab soup. That would be... Live near the bay. Got to take advantage of it. So last two questions. This is the lightning round. Trader Joe's or Whole Foods? Actually, Wegmans, if I if I could add them, a chain from Buffalo, New York, Old but uh, of the two, Trader Joe's. Hey, I'm a Democrat. Giant food. That's it. Now we're talking. <laughs> Good unionized uh, workers. Excellent. Because we normally, there's a duopoly in Switzerland, so we normally say co-op or migro. So it's definitely, yeah. so that's could, definitely giant food is one of those for You sure. can tell we've been out of here. Safeway of, or giant? Safeway I've heard of, giant food never heard of growing up on Staten Island. This is we have we Tony Dinapoli's. Yes. Uh, <laughs> It's a neighborhood. It's a neighborhood grocery store. It's very simple. Exactly. We go to the, we go to the shop, as we call it. Uh, so, last question: Hershey's or Lint? I think we know where you're going to answer. I don't even know why we're asking this. Lint. Lint. Oh, whoa. Okay. Even the guy who represented who represented a senator from Pennsylvania took took Lint. Yes. Yes. Uh, Swiss is better, I, I, I think. Given given the option, I'd I'd take Neuhaus. It's Belgian, I know, but, uh, but no, no, definitely Swiss over Hershey. No, 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 no. This is a good that's choice. a faux pas. That's a faux pas. <laughs> Sorry, this is a good choice. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Really been fun to talk to you, and I think we're we're learning. I, I've learned a lot, especially you know considering I've been I feel like I've been outside the U.S. for a bit too long now. So it's good to get back, uh, recalibrate, if you will. And then quick quick plug, where can people listen to your podcast? Thanks for having us on. We're, we're the Trade Guys. Look for the yellow background on Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to csis.org slash podcasts and pick us out of the lineup. Yeah, we have atrocious sort of vomit yellow and black coloring. I think you just described the trade splitting cover. <laughs> This is an American but, thing. But Great it, minds think alike. But it's ours. Exactly. Okay? <laughs> yeah. It's it's not about it's 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 the brand. Just ask Scott. It doesn't yes. matter what the colors are as long as people know it. It's vomit yellow, but it's our vomit. It's yellow. our vomit yellow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. 
If you listened last week, you'll know that, to paraphrase Senator Robert Byrd, all news is local. So we're going from the local news you wouldn't believe to global yeah. news you wouldn't believe. Which is also local for many people. Yeah, it's global. It's G-local. <laughs> wink, wink. So, Artie, I've had my first shot. We're all thinking we may be traveling again by it's area. It's too early plane. in the morning to be drinking, Rob. Ba-bum-bum. What'd you have? Dad jokes? You wanted, you wanted less dad jokes? More. <laughs> So if we're going to start traveling by aerial plane again, which I would, you know, do, an, I do an, think an aerial plane may as be opposed necessary. to what, a subterranean plane. <laughs> I just, I just wanted to ask you what the holy hell is going on up there. So first, I read there's a new trend of throwing pr- prayer beads or rolled up coins into the engine of an aircraft you're going to be flying on for good luck. Is that good luck? Well, if you can't visit uh, <laughs> Fountain de, de yeah. Trevi, uh, yeah. uh, why did I say it with a French accent? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Trevi. I just passed my French test, by the way. That's probably why. Fantastic. The Fontana de Trevi. If you can't, if you can't throw your coins in there, you got to yeah. find the next best thing in the engine of the plane you're about to get on. Yolo. I don't think it's. I think if we are if we're influencers at all, please don't throw coins into the plane you're getting on. Yeah, I think they're going on a wing and a prayer. <laughs> so the the second thing is the FAA reports they've had 1,300 complaints of altercations on planes this year. Normally, annually they get about 150 or 200. So I was just. Taking a look at one of the recent ones, uh, a young woman, and this can happen, was upset about the fact that uh, the flight attendant didn't pick up her trash. She started to argue. A second flight attendant came in. She punched her, pulled her hair. She then went away. Then she came back. She began yelling obscenities. She said, the cops won't do anything to me. Turned out to not be true. Then she struck the victim with closed Narrator, the cops did, in fact, do something. (laughs) Then she caused two of them to fall to the floor and then attempted to pull up or remove the victim's dress. Now, first of all... That escalated quickly. (laughs) First of all, great that it's not just the usual seven martini guy from business class. (laughs) So I think we've come a long way here. Second, what I'm saying is maybe just put your trash in that little net bag on the back of the seat in front of you. I mean, is is it like Fight Club up there? Well, that lady actually, funnily enough, was just recently signed by the UFC. She's headlining UFC 80,000 <laughs> in Las Vegas. She's getting she's getting a lot of play. Maybe this was to, to help her podcast. I'm, I'm going to punch you in the face soon. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I wonder if, you know, in the next flight, maybe I'll just take a helmet or, you know. So, uh, some body armor. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, folks, what we take away from this is please don't punch. And don't drink and fly. Kick and pull the hair of any of your flight attendants. And second of all, don't drink and fly. I don't drink a lot and fly. <laughs> On that 19-hour flight to Singapore from Newark. Well, you would drink too <laughs> if you had to fly out of Newark. Well, folks, that about wraps up this week's episode that was brought to you by the number 19 and the element potassium. Hashtag drink it up. Gatorade. <laughs> We'd like to thank our guests, Scott Miller and Bill Reins, the CSIS Trade Guys, for joining us in discussing U.S. trade policy, Kansas City barbecue, and of course, Staten Island. Hashtag love. And also thanks to Michelle for her help in producing this podcast episode. And don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already. Subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. Also feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Also, email us your questions, comments, suggestions to trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And always remember, folks, listen responsibly.